It is 12.51 of the AM 19th of April, 2020. Uh, usual uh, whistles, um, boilerplate. Uh, I am using this podcast to promote and read public domain literature that more people should know about and now everyone has time to read. If you look in the uh, essay that accompanies this podcast, you will find links to uh, the story I'm reading and possibly something else if it comes up. Uh, But the plan for this one is to continue with the role I am on uh, reading some of the uh, horror stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which are marvelous and amongst his many wonderful non-Sherlock Holmes uh, stories, he has a collection of horror uh, tales, which uh, through the link to Project Gutenberg, you can also get a version uh, for your Kindle. So if you like that, and if you would rather read than listen, uh, feel free to check that out. And just skimming through, uh, last night uh, around... 3 a.m. of the last day, because quarantine hours, whatever, and we're just past one month of the quarantine, uh, that I, last night, uh, was reading The New Catacomb, which uh, was the previous story. Uh, I finished by reading a Next Time on... A uh, paragraph or two of Lady Sanox, or the tale of Lady Sanox. Um, this collection was published in 1926. Also, the reason for saying boilerplate, because it has to be noted before reading anything of Conan Doyle or some other authors or just generally for this podcast that this is coming from a Victorian era thinking and mindset and stuff. So if there are things that would not be acceptable today, I'm just reading stuff as it is uh, short of actual racial slurs or, uh, you know, just, uh, there is some um, stuff in Conan Doyle that uh, people will not have encountered. Some of his stories that are very good, but uh, but some of them uh, are based on assumptions about race or personalities based on physical traits. There's some of that stuff. Uh, although in going through The Lost World just now, 
looking back over some of what I haven't read yet, he talks about uh, astronomers and something and flat earth people is mentioned in the 1912 novel. Uh, and the next story, because uh, I'm looking down just up and down the Gutenberg, the story after the one I'll get to uh, shortly is The Terror of Blue John Gap. And it's another Lovecraftian, uh, possibly before Lovecraft, possibly inspiring Lovecraft. The following narrative was found among the papers of Dr. James Hardcastle, who died of phthisis on February 4th, 1908, at 36 Upper Coventry Flats, South Kensington. And, uh, his whatever murder or mysterious something will be next time. Uh, oh, of course. Uh, and while I'm doing stuff that I've run across, I'm very open to uh, reading or amplifying other uh, fiction or literature that people may want to have amplified. So if you want to uh, suggest something or reach out for any other reason, please hit me up on Twitter uh, at time of posting. And it is about six minutes into this recording when the actual story begins. The Case of Lady Sanox. The relations between Douglas Stone and the notorious Lady Sanox were very well known, both among the fashionable circles of which she was a brilliant member and the scientific bodies which numbered him among their most illustrious confreres. There was naturally, therefore, a very widespread interest when it was announced one morning that the lady had absolutely and forever taken the veil, which I said before, um, I believe is saying she's going to a nunnery, but we'll say, um, and that the world would see her no more. When at the very tale of this rumor with the you, cause British, uh, there came the assurance that the celebrated operating surgeon, the man of steel nerves, had been found in the morning by his valet, seated on one side of his bed, smiling pleasantly upon the universe, with both legs jammed into one side of his breeches and his great brain about as valuable as a cap of porridge. The matter was strong enough to give quite a little thrill of interest to folk who had never hoped that their jaded nerves were capable of such a sensation. Douglas Stone, in his prime, was one of the most remarkable men in England. Indeed, he could hardly be said to have ever reached his prime, for he was but nine and thirty at the time of this little incident. Those who knew him best were aware that famous as he was as a surgeon, 
he might have succeeded with even greater rapidity in any of a dozen lines of life. He could have cut his way to fame as a soldier, struggled to it as an explorer, bullied for it in the courts, or built it out of stone and iron as an engineer. He was born to be great, for he could plan what another man dare not do, and he could do what another man dare not plan. In surgery, none could follow him. His nerve, his judgment, his intuition were things apart. Again and again, his knife cut away death, but grazed the very springs of life in doing it, until his assistants were as white as the patient. His energy, his audacity, his full-blooded self-confidence. Does not the memory of them still linger to the south of Marleybone Road and the north of Oxford Street? His vices were as magnificent as his virtues and infinitely more picturesque. Large as was his income, and it was the third largest of all professional men in London, it was far beneath the luxury of his living. Deep in his complex nature lay a rich vein of sensualism, at the sport of which he placed all the prizes of his life. The eye, the ear, the touch, the palate, all were his masters. The bouquet of old vintages, the scent of rare exotics, the curves and tints of the daintiest potteries of Europe, it was to these that the quick-running stream of who's these the quick-running stream of gold was oh oh his money uh quick-running stream of gold was transformed that's nice but a little confusing mm. and then there came his sudden mad passion for Lady Sanox when a single interview with two challenging glances and a whispered word set him ablaze. She was the loveliest woman in London and the only one to him, which, uh, of course, makes me think of uh, with Sherlock Holmes, the only woman. He was one of the handsomest men in London, but not the only one to her. She... Uh, had a liking for new experiences and was gracious to most men who wooed her. It may have been cause or it may have been a fact that Lord Sanex looked 50, even though he was but six and 30. He was a quiet, silent, neutral-tinted man, this lord, with thin lips and heavy eyelids, much given to gardening and full of home-like habits. He had at one time been fond of acting, had even rented a theater in London, and on its boards he had first seen Miss Marianne Dawson, to whom he had offered his hand, his title, and the third of a county. Since his marriage, his early hobby had become distasteful to him. Even in private theatricals, it was no longer possible to persuade him to exercise the talent which he had often showed that he possessed. He was happier with a spud and a watering can among his orchids and chrysanthemums. It was quite an interesting problem, whether he was absolutely devoid of sense 
or miserably wanting in spirit. Did he know his lady's ways and condone them, or was he a mere blind, doting fool? It was a point to be discussed over the teacups in snug little drawing rooms, or with the aid of a cigar in the bow windows or bow windows of clubs. Bitter and plain were the comments among men upon his conduct. There was but one who had a good word to say for him, and he was the most silent member in the smoking room. He had seen him break in a horse at the university, and it seemed to have left an impression upon his mind. But when Douglas Stone became the favorite, all doubts as to Lord Sannox's knowledge or ignorance were set forever at rest. There was no subterfuge about Stone. In his high-handed, impetuous fashion, he set all caution and discretion at defiance. The scandal became notorious. A learned body intimated that his name had been struck from the list of its vice presidents. Two friends implored him to consider his professional credit. He cursed them all three and spent 40 guineas on a bangle to take with him to the lady. He was at her house every evening and she drove in his carriage in the afternoons. There was not an attempt on either side to conceal their relations, but there came at last a little incident to interrupt them. It was a dismal winter's night, very cold and gusty. The sound effects budget for this show is uh, obviously low, but uh, with the wind whooping in the chimneys and blustering against the window panes. A thin spatter of rain tinkled on the glass with each fresh, so soft, it looks like it ought to rhyme with dough. as in the brilliant Dr. Seuss bit uh, with uh, about the O-U-G-H words, the tough coughs as he plows the dough. Future Adam, link to that book. The collection of different short Dr. Seuss things is remarkable. And uh, that one, the cover story is... uh, Uh, Quite a whopper. Um, Tough coughs. Each fresh sow, S-O-U-G-H, pronounced how the fuck is making a moaning, whistling, or rushing sound. People also ask, how do you say the word, uh, pronunciation, seo or seif, sof, whatever, uh, yeah, so each fresh blowing of the wind of the gale, uh, each fresh blowing of the gale will do, uh, Drowning for the instant the dull gurgle and drip from the eaves. Douglas Stone had finished his dinner 
and sat by his fire in the study, a glass of rich poured upon the malachite table at his elbow. As he raised it to his lips, he held it up against the lamplight and watched with the eye of a connoisseur the tiny scales of beeswing? Bees? Beeswing? Is that a thing? Beeswings? In... If it is, I'm not enough of a connoisseur. Beeswing means... A film of shining scales of tartar formed in port and some other wines after long keeping or very filmy pieces of bran. Uh, I have had good port maybe twice, once memorably, and I may have had it again, but it's not a liquor I've run into much. Uh, but that's a bit of, that's a very keen eye for detail, Conan Doyle. Um, rich ruby depths. The fire, as it spurted up, threw fitful lights upon his bald, clear-cut face with its widely opened gray eyes, its thick and yet firm lips, and the deep, square jaw which had something Roman in its strength and its animalism. He smiled from time to time as he nestled back in his luxurious chair. Indeed, he had a right to feel well-pleased, for against the advice of six colleagues, he had performed an operation that day of which only two cases were on record, and the result had been brilliant beyond all expectation. No other man in London would have had the daring to plan or the skill to execute such a heroic measure. But he had promised Lady Sanox to see her that evening, and it was already half past eight. His hand was outstretched to the bell to order the carriage when he heard the dull thud of the knocker. And uh, as young Frankenstein or Frankenstein uh, put it, uh, what knockers uh, on the door? An instant later, there was the shuffling of feet in the hall and the sharp closing of the door. A patient to see you, sir, in the consulting room, said the butler. And uh, I don't know if he had a butler. Uh, I guess he would have been able to afford it uh, with all the writing and celebrity and all. But Conan Doyle was a doctor uh, originally by profession and famously like how J.K. Rowling was said to do uh, her writing of Harry Potter in a pub, the elephant something, uh, that uh, Conan Doyle, uh, I've heard a few times, he said that uh, he started writing while waiting for patience. And uh, I guess, I don't know if he was uh, Dr. Watson or uh, he never went to Afghanistan, though, so far as I know. Um, his hand was outstretched to the bell to order the carriage when he heard the dull thud of the knocker. 
desk isn't good for an ominous knocker. An instant later, there was the shuffling of feet in the hall and the sharp closing of a door. A patient to see you, sir, in the consulting room, said the butler. About himself? No, sir, I think he wants you to go out. It is too late, cried Douglas Stone peevishly. I won't go. This is his card, sir. The butler presented it upon the gold salver which had been given to his master by the wife of a prime minister. Hamil Ali, Smyrna. Hmm, the fellow is a Turk, I suppose. Boilerplate, reading it, assumptions at the time, whatever, Doyle. Ah, uh, yes, sir. He seems as if he came from abroad, sir, and he's in a terrible way. Tut, tut, I have an engagement. I must go somewhere else, but I'll see him. Show him in here, Pim. A few moments later, the butler swung open the door and had ushered in a small and decrepit man who walked with a bent back and with the forward push of the face and blink of the eyes, which goes with extreme short sight. His face was swarthy and his hair and beard of the deepest black. In one hand, he held a turban of white muslin uh, with uh, an, uh, not a muslin, is a cotton fabric of plain weave, if you're not familiar uh, with the stuff. It gets its name from the city of Mosul, or Mosul, excuse me, Iraq, where it was first manufactured. There's your trivia thing uh, of a number. Um... Striped with red, in the other, a small chamois leather bag. There's a word I see more written down. I have seen written down. I don't know if I've ever heard it out loud, but it looks French. Good evening, said Douglas Stone, when the butler had closed the door. You speak English, I presume. I'm not going to do voices. Um, yes, sir. I'm from Asia Minor, but I speak English when I speak slow. You wanted me to go out, I understand? Yes, sir. I wanted very much that you should see my wife. I could come in the morning, but I have an engagement which prevents me from seeing your wife tonight. The Turk's answer was a singular one. He pulled the string which closed the mouth of the chamois leather bag and poured a flood of gold onto the table. There are 100 pounds there, said he, and I promise you that it will not take you an hour. I have the cab ready at the door. Douglas Stone glanced at his watch. An hour would not make it too late to visit Lady Sanox. He had been there later, and the fee was an extraordinarily high one. He had been pressed by his creditors lately, and he could not afford to let such a chance pass. He would go. What is the case, he asked. Oh, it is so a sad a one, so sad a one. You have not, perhaps, heard of the daggers of the Almohades. Uh, thank you, Google. Almohad, a member of a Berber Muslim movement and dynasty that conquered the Spanish and North African empire of the Almoravids in the 12th century. 
Sag, Caliphate, um, in the south of modern Morocco. Okay. Uh, the daggers of the Almohades, please excuse the pronunciation. Uh, never. Ah, they are eastern daggers of a great age and of a singular shape, with the hilt like what you would call a stirrup. I'm curious if this is a real thing. No, you know, this one, there was something in The Lost World I was reading. I think he made up the name of the... Uh, the Indian tribe in the Amazon there. But uh, the daggers of Alma, Hades. Yeah, I guess it's curved or I'm not sure. It seems uh, it says dagger of Alma, Hades, horror, radio. So, oh, interesting. There is uh no, it's called the Dagger of Almohades. Is this also Conan Doyle? The uh, CBS. Uh, hum, hum, hum. The theater. John Lithgow is in it. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Uh, uh, note for future Adam there is a YouTube of this. So uh, please include, and one of them has Sherlock Holmes with the pipe. So maybe this is Conan Doyle, uh, but it's 1.17 a.m. I'm just tracking like I do with these and it's 26 minutes. So I'll have to flip the desk. I'll just uh, finish. Looks like... Uh, or a bit of uh, this. I'll read a bit more of the lines. Then uh, next tape. So you have not perhaps heard of the daggers of the Almohades? Never. Ah, they are eastern daggers of a great age and of a singular shape, with the hilt like what you would call a stirrup. I am a curiosity dealer, you understand, uh, and that is why I have come to England from Smyrna, but next week I go back once more. Many things I brought with me, and I have a few things left, but among them, to my sorrow, is one of these daggers. You will remember that I have an appointment, sir, said the surgeon with some irritation. Pray confine yourself to the necessary details. And he says you will see that it is necessary, but I'm going to do that disc flip thing and... We'll see you on the other side of this transition. It is 1.21 a.m. Sunday, April 19th, 2020. Quarantine, one month, two days, and the sound effect we just had uh goes out to my dad, who I know is at least one a regular listener that I've got. And I know, you know, uh kind of music 
I hope you're enjoying listening to this. Uh, and whoever else might be tuning in at some point. Um, so you will remember that I have an appointment, sir, said the surgeon with some irritation. Pray confine yourself to the necessary details. You will see that it is necessary. Today my wife fell down in a faint in the room where I keep my wares, and she cut her lower lip upon this cursed dagger of Almahades. That sounds likely. She just fell down, Guy? I see, said Douglas Stone, rising, and you wish me to dress the wound. No, no, it is worse than that. What then? What then? Uh, missing a comma. Uh, what then? These daggers are poisoned. Poisoned? Yes, and there is no man, east or west, who can tell now what is the poison or what the cure. But all that is known I know, for my father was in this trade before me, and we have much to do with these poisons weapons. And yet you left it unsheathed in a room where your either very clumsy wife or I don't quite trust the she just fell on this exposed knife story. I'm not buying that quite, but okie doke. You deal in them and you left uh, this out on the counter apparently. Go on. What are the symptoms? Deep sleep and death in 30 hours. And you say there is no cure. Why then should you pay me this considerable fee? No drug can cure, but the knife may. And how? The poison is slow of absorption. It remains for hours in the wound. Washing then might cleanse it. No more than in a snake bite. It is too subtle and too deadly. Excision of the wound then. That it is. If it be on the finger, take the finger off. So said my father always. But think of where this wound is, and that it is my wife. It is dreadful. But familiarity with such grim matters might take the finer edge from a man's sympathy. To Douglas Stone, this was already an interesting case, and he brushed aside as irrelevant the feeble objections of the husband. It appears to be that or nothing, said he brusquely. It is better to lose a lip than a life. Ah, yes, I know that you are right. Well, well, it is kismet, and it must be faced. I have the cab, and you will come with me and do this thing. Douglas Stone took his case of bistuaries. The hell? Bistuary, a surgical knife with a long, narrow, straight, or curved blade, currently being mispronounced, I'm sure, from a drawer and placed it with a roll of bandage and a compress of lint in his pocket. He must waste no more time if he were to see Lady Sanox. I am ready, said he, pulling on his overcoat. Will you take a glass of wine before you go out into this cold air? His visitor shrank away with a protesting hand upraised. You forget that I am a Mussulman, which is a... Uh, 
archaic uh, word for Muslim, that I am a Muslim and a true follower of the Prophet, said he. But tell me, what is the bottle of green glass which you have placed in your pocket? It is chloroform. Ah, that also is forbidden. Oh, God. That also is forbidden to us. It is a spirit, and we make no use of such things. What? You would allow your wife to go through an operation without an anesthetic? Ah, she will feel nothing, poor soul. The deep sleep has already come on, which is the first working of the poison. And then I have given her of our Smyrna opium. Come, sir, for already an hour has passed. As they stepped out into the darkness, a sheet of rain was driven in upon their faces, and the hall lamp, which dangled from the arm of a marble caryatid, which is a word I know, it's, but I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing, it's with a capital C here, a stone carving of a draped female figure used as a pillar to support the entablature of a Greek or Greek-style building, uh, and the Greek term Karyatides literally means maidens of Karyai, an ancient town of Peloponnese. Uh, thank you, Google and Wikipedia. Um, my collaborators <laughs> on uh, the vocabulary part of this podcast um, went out with a fluff. Pim, the butler, pushed the heavy door too, straining hard with his shoulder against the wind, while the two men groped their way toward the yellow glare, which, yeah, which showed where the cab was waiting. An instant later, they were rattling upon their journey. Is it far? asked Douglas Stone. Oh no, we have a very little quiet place off the Euston Road. The surgeon pressed the spring of his repeater and listened to the little tings which told him the hour. It was a quarter past nine, and it is right now half past one a.m. here. Uh, he calculated the distances and the short time which it would take him to perform so trivial an operation. He ought to re reach Lady Sanox by ten o'clock, through the fogged windows, he saw the blurred gas lamps dancing past, with occasionally the broader glare of a shop front. The rain was pelting and rattling upon the leathern top of the carriage, and the wheels swashed as they rolled through puddle and mud. Opposite to him, the white headgear of his companion gleamed faintly through the obscurity. The surgeon felt in his pockets and arranged his needles, his ligatures, and his safety pins that no time might be wasted when they arrived. He chafed with impatience and drummed his foot upon the floor. But the cab slowed down at last and pulled up. In an instant, Douglas Stone was out, and the Smyrna merchant's toe was at his very heel. You can wait, said he to the driver. It was a mean-looking house in a narrow and sordid street, the surgeon, who knew his London well, cast a swift glance into the shadows, but there was nothing distinctive. No shop, no movement, 
nothing but a double line of dull, flat-faced houses, a double stretch of wet flagstones, which gleamed in the lamplight, and a double rush of water in the gutters, which swirled and gurgled toward the sewer gratings. The door which faced them was blotched and discolored, discolored, and a faint light in the fan pane above, it served to show... It served to show the dust and the grime which covered it. Above in one of the bedroom windows, there was a dull yellow glimmer. And before the merchant knocks, uh, I'm having a little wave of, I know I'm running on fumes and I've done this a few times. So just observing that whatever parts of language processing and stuff and how we all work, I am reading this. And I understand what I'm reading, but also uh, my brain is just winding down. So I'm putting myself into this story. But uh, after this, I think I'm uh, cruising toward uh, happy, just crash. <laughs> Quarantine hours for better and for weirder for uh and if you still are working right now also heart going out to you or if you were when you're hearing this if you were working at this time uh in april and in the spring of this pandemic uh god bless and all best and uh, I hope that all of you stay safe and healthy. And uh, back to the surgeon. The door which faced them was... Blo oh, yeah. Above in one of the bedroom windows, there was a dull yellow glimmer. The merchant knocked loudly. And as he turned his dark face toward the light, Douglas Stone could see that it was contracted with anxiety. A bolt was drawn, and an elderly woman with a taper stood in the doorway, shielding the thin flame with her gnarled hand. Is all well? gasped the merchant. She is as you left her, sir. She has not spoken? No, she is in a deep sleep. The merchant closed the door and Douglas Stone walked down the narrow passage, glancing about him in some surprise as he did so. There was no oilcloth, no mat, no hat rack. Deep gray dust and heavy festoons of cobwebs met his eyes everywhere. Following the old woman up the winding stair, his firm footfall echoed harshly through the silent house. There was no carpet. The bedroom was on the second landing. Douglas Stone followed the old nurse into it, with the merchant at his heels. Here, at least, there was furniture and to spare. The floor was littered and the corners piled with Turkish cabinets, inlaid tables, coats of chainmail, strange pipes, and grotesque weapons. A single small lamp stood upon a bracket on the wall. Douglas Stone took it down 
and picking his way among the lumber, walked over to a couch in the corner on which lay a woman dressed in the Turkish fashion with yashmak and veil. And uh, that is yashmak is a veil. Oh, it's uh, like the kind of veil that someone would look and say, oh, it's a burqa. It's a veil concealing all the face except the eyes uh, style. Uh, or niqab uh, is another word Wikipedia says, and I may be mispronouncing, excuse me. Uh, it's a Persian custom adopted by Arabs. Uh, interestingly, it says, today there's almost no usage of this garment in Turkey, uh, but I guess uh, the style has moved elsewhere. Um, the lower part of the face was exposed, and the surgeon saw a jagged cut which zigzagged along the border of the under lip. You will forgive the yashmak, said the Turk. You know our views about women in the East. But the surgeon was not thinking about the yashmak. This was no longer a woman to him. It was a case. He stooped and examined the wound carefully. There are no signs of irritation, said he. We might delay the operation until local symptoms develop. The husband wrung his hands in uncontrollable agitation. Oh, sir, sir, he cried. Do not trifle. You do not know. It is deadly. I know and I give you my assurance that an operation is absolutely necessary. Only the knife can save her. And yet I am inclined to wait, said Douglas Stone. That is enough, the Turk cried angrily. Every minute is of importance, and I cannot stand here and see my wife allowed to sink. It only remains for me to give you my thanks for having come, and to call in some other surgeon before it is too late. Douglas Stone hesitated. To refund that hundred pounds was no pleasant matter. But of course, he, if he left the case, he must return the money. And if the Turk were right and the woman died, his position before a coroner might be an embarrassing one. You've had personal experience of this poison, he asked. I have. And you assure me that an operation is needful. I swear it by all that I hold sacred. The disfigurement will be frightful. I can understand that the mouth will not be a pretty one to kiss. Douglas Stone turned fiercely upon the man. The speech was a brutal one, but the Turk had his own fashion of talk and of thought, and there was no time for wrangling. Douglas Stone drew a bestuary from his case, a surgical knife, opened it, and felt the keen straight edge with his forefinger. Then he held the lamp closer to the bed, Two dark eyes were glazing, gazing up at him through the slit in the yashmak. They were all iris, and the pupil was hardly to be seen. You've given her a very heavy dose of opium. Yes, she had a good do has had a good dose. He glanced again at the dark eyes which looked straight at his own. They were dull and lusterless, but even as he gazed... A little shifting sparkle came into them 
and the lips quivered. She's not absolutely unconscious, said he. Would it not be well to use the knife while it will be painless? The same thought had crossed the surgeon's mind. He grasped the wounded lip with his forceps, and with two swift cuts, he took out a broad V-shaped piece. The woman sprang up on the couch with a dreadful gurgling scream. Uh, and folks, if you have had enough right now, uh, the story isn't quite done, but she's awake. So uh, brace yourself wherever this is going, um, wherever this is. Um, her cover... Her covering was torn from her face. It was a face that he knew. In spite of the protruding upper lip and that slobber of blood, it was a face, oh, it is repeating. It was a face that he knew. She kept putting her hand up to the gap and screaming. Douglas Stone sat down at the foot of the couch with his knife and his forceps. The room was whirling round and he had felt something go like a ripping seam behind his ear. A bystander would have said that his face was the more ghastly of the two. As in a dream, or as if he had been looking at something at the play, he was conscious that the Turk's hair and beard lay upon the table and that Lord Sanex was leaning against the wall with his hand to his side, laughing silently. The screams had died away now, and the dreadful head had dropped back again upon the pillow but Douglas Stone sat, still sat motionless, and Lord Sanex still chuckled quietly to himself. It was really very necessary for Marion, this operation, said he. Um, uh, not physically, but morally, you know, morally. Douglas Stone stooped for yards and began to play with the fringe of the coverlet. His knife tinkled down upon the ground, but he still held the forceps and something more. I had long intended to make a little example, said Lord Sanex, suavely. Your note of Wednesday miscarried, and I have it here in my pocketbook. I took some pains in carrying out my idea. The wound, by the way, was from nothing more dangerous than my signet ring. He glanced keenly at his silent companion and cocked the small revolver which he held in his coat pocket. But Douglas Stone was still picking at the coverlet. You see, you have kept your appointment after all, said Lord Sanex. And at that, Douglas Stone began to laugh. He laughed long and loudly, but Lord Sanex did not laugh now. Something like fear sharpened and hardened his features. He walked from the room, and he walked on tiptoe. The old woman was waiting outside. Attend to your mistress when she awakes, said Lord Sanex. Then he went down to the street. The cab was at the door, and the driver raised his hat to hand to his hat. John, said Lord Sanex. You will take the doctor home first. He will want leading downstairs, I think. Tell his butler that he has been taken ill at a case. Very good, sir. 
Then you can take Lady Sanix home. And how about yourself, sir? Oh, my address for the next few months will be Hotel di Roma, Venice. Just see that the letters are sent on, and tell Stevens to exhibit all the purple chrysanthemums next Monday. Blah. And tell Stevens to exhibit all the purple chrysanthemums next Monday, and to wire me the result. And that was some cold-blooded villainy right there. That that was pretty. That was pretty not pretty, is what. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. Uh, and these stories are uh, surprising to me all over again. Uh, I've said this on the other recordings, but I say it again in my startlement at that the he's just so good and it so goes so far and as you can see from that one uh there are sherlock holmes stories that they don't go into the grisly details but there are a few with some weird scary shit uh in them uh I remember and still think that the uh, the conclusion of the adventure of the Speckled Band uh, is uh, chilling and uh, masterful work of uh, that adventure uh, and brings me back to a time to... When I read that, like in fourth grade or so, when I was 10, it's a long ass time ago. Um, wow. <laughs> well, there's one to follow you in your dreams. Uh, if, uh, unless you have CBD or medical marijuana or opium, you know, in, or chloroform, if that's your poison, um, I guess. But uh, in any case, I hope that this does find you well and sleeping well and uh, safely quarantined. So at 1.44 a.m., uh, signing off. Again, if you have reasons to reach out or are interested to suggest something else I might read, you can find me on Twitter at Time of Posting. And until then, uh, be well and Zygazen.